Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of child death. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing really well actually. Good. Actually, I woke up feeling like crap and I've just been feeling really good throughout the day, so oh, going with it. You turned it around. Was it the power of iced coffee? It was maybe, oh, you know what it was? Probably the power of hot coffee. Oh. Mm, yeah. Okay. I, I made a little French press about like an hour or two ago. Mm-hmm. And I drank the whole thing. <laughs> Great. Good job. Is it caffeine? Oh, duh. I mean, I, I okay. shouldn't say duh. I know you like decaf and I don't want to, you know, shit on your decaf You don't want to yuck my yum. <laughs> I, I have a hard time calling decaf coffee a yum, but sure. Yes. I don't want to yuck your yum. I mean, okay. I, it doesn't affect the flavor very much, but it does a little bit. It does. I don't think so. Well, the decaffeination process of coffee beans, and I could feel you rolling your eyes, <laughs> um, <laughs> it does something to change the flavor most of the time, unless they're using like a really expensive method to do so. So I don't know, because they have to soak the caffeine out of the bean. Okay, well, I think I just realized why I don't notice the difference is I never drink coffee. I drink lattes. Oh, that's fair. And so I think it doesn't, like, the milk flavor kind of overwhelms any change in the coffee bean flavor. Okay, I'll give you that. Great. Coffee chat. Coffee talk. Coffee (laughs) talk. Like SNL back in the day. (laughs) Coffee talk. I was just re-watching all the Penelope videos of SNL with Kristen Wiig. I love those. those. Those are so good. So funny. I love those so much. I wonder how much of that is just ad-libbed, you know? I have to believe that a fair amount of it is. Oh, you know which one she has to ad-lib, I feel like, Kristen Wiig? <laughs> which one? Have you ever seen her do Judy Grimes on SNL, on Weekend Update? No. Uh-uh. Oh my god, you have to look up the Judy Grimes videos. It's a <laughs> character she only has done on Weekend Update, I think. Okay. And I don't even know what the questions they usually ask her are, is, but she plays like this nervous wreck of a character who just <laughs> does circular talking. So okay. like the host will be like, oh, so what did you do today? And she'll be like, I went to the store. No, I didn't. I'm here. Just kidding. I'm not here. I'm somewhere else. I'm on a moon. Just kidding. I'm not here. I'm not on the moon. I'm, no, I'm in your moon. I'm in your room. Ah, here I am. It's like so good. And I just don't know how she is able to like, A, keep a straight face and keep it going for so long. So good. I somehow came across like a BuzzFeed article of 20, like the 20 best times that people broke character on SNL. And of course, like Bill Hader is like seven of them because he (laughs) cannot keep a straight face to save his life. Yeah. Did they do the the Disney Debbie Debbie Downer? Downer? Sure did. That had to be on there. Yeah. Because I think they pointed out Jimmy Fallon, I think, uh-huh. hides his face behind a waffle because he can't oh. stop laughing. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon's another. I don't think Jimmy Fallon has ever stayed in character in his entire run on SNL. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah. Jimmy Fallon's. Well, yeah. Okay. No, not a fan? I'm not a fan. I feel like Jimmy Fallon is a really bad interviewer because he doesn't let his guests talk. He talks oh, over them. He you know? sings with them. And it's just like, let them have a moment. Yeah. It's like a little showboaty. Yes. Very much. Mm. I like him in, in, I don't really watch his show, but I like the little clips I see of it every once in a while. Mm, uh But he is a little, like, but he's cute. I have a little crush, I can't lie. 
Well, I just, <laughs> speaking of Jimmy Fallon, though, stream of consciousness, I've been listening on repeat to Countdown by Beyonce. It's just like oh. my, my theme song at the moment. Okay. And number one, she is a, like above human abilities when it comes to singing. And you really hear it in that song because the like vocal runs that she does are astonishing. And then she does them flawlessly live. She's so good. That is a really good example of her vocal ability. It's nuts. I, I can't believe it. A lot of control in her. Uh, yes. I really love I love that video too. It's good. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> um, well, I have a random proposal for you that I thought was kind of exciting that I wanted to get your opinion on. And listeners, if you have very strong opinions on this, you can feel free to email us as well. I'm very interested because I see what you wrote the topic is about, and I'm very yes. interested in your thoughts about this topic. So hit okay. me with it. So sometimes law and order is not inspired, directly inspired by a crime. And Mm -hmm. we've had some episodes like that where we have found similar crimes and told those stories. And I just wanted to propose an alternative to that, which is if there's a like a story that we really, really want to cover, that we can just do that one. Hmm. Okay. And I like because I'm thinking there are some really good stories out there that I am obsessed with, would love to do some more research on, would love to like tell on the podcast, and they probably won't show up on like a Law and Order episode. And so I figured we could occasionally, if we were feeling jazzy and excited, do a crime or a story that we just really wanted to tell. I like that idea. Okay, yay. I like that idea. I like that idea if we can also have the option to pick a similar crime as well if there's something really closely related to it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Because I feel like every once in a while, we're probably going to see cases that remind us of more current crimes. Yes. So I'll probably default to trying to find something similar. And then if in the first (laughs) two and a half minutes, I can't. (laughs) Imagine that's my time frame. In the first 90 seconds, if I can't find anything on Ask Jeeves, I'll just, um, I'll try it. (laughs) I'll pick my favorite. Great. Love it. So that was my proposal. Well, yeah, I I love that. And I I love the listener feedback portion. So yeah, agreed. Listeners, if you like that, if you don't like that, let us know. It might not change our minds, but yeah, (laughs) I want to know. But we would love to hear your opinions anyway. (laughs) All opinions are welcome. Yes. Also, speaking of stream of consciousness, a little while ago, we mentioned the SNL skits with Kristen Wiig. Uh And I'm going to make this connect. Okay. The Penelope skit... One of my favorites is the one where she's in the driving school with Amy Adams. Okay. And I just watched a movie with Amy Adams in it last night that I want to tell you was so good. Okay. Tell me everything. The Woman in the Window. Okay. Have you heard of it? I don't think so. Oh, okay. So I remember when the previews were in the movie theater for it. I couldn't wait for it. And it's on Netflix now, I think. Yeah, probably Mm -hmm. Netflix. So easy to find. It's so good. Oh, really? Oh my gosh. I really liked it. It's sort of... A mystery. The concept is Amy Adams is like a shut-in, agoraphobic. She doesn't leave the house. And across the street, she witnesses a crime. Oh, I think I've heard of either this movie or a very similar story. Mm -hmm. Is it based on a real story? I don't know, but it might be. Okay, because this is ringing like bells in the recesses of my memory. Yeah, and the like the big twist of it is the woman who gets stabbed. Are, are you about to reveal the no, plot? No, 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 no. It's, okay. it's this is what you would see in the trailer. Okay. The woman, there are new neighbors that she sees the crime happen to, and she sees the woman get stabbed. The, the weird thing about it, though, is she met the woman briefly because she's a new neighbor. 
Mm-hmm. And then a woman pops up in the house with blonde hair also, but it's not the same woman. And the mm. family across the street is saying it's the same woman. Mm. So it's like she met somebody who's pretending to be that person or, or this new person is pretending to be that person. It's like a who, and it's a psychological to, like thrill ride because she's agoraphobic. She's struggling with her own mental health issues also. Yeah. So you're... It's played in a way where you're never really sure who, what you're seeing, whose perspective you're seeing things through. It's very interesting. Huh. And they do it in a really cool way where they, like, do a lot of, you know, beautiful, interesting, creative shots that show, mm. like, the state of her mind and stuff. Mm-hmm. Julianne Moore is in it also. Um, I love her. I do, too. Yeah, so I want to recommend that movie. We just watched, speaking of Julianne Moore, we just watched The Forgotten last week from the early 2000s. Do you remember that movie? No, but speaking of Julianne Moore, my favorite role of hers is Nancy on 30 Rock, Jack's girlfriend from Boston. <laughs> oh, I have seen her in that role. <laughs> <laughs> the most atrocious Boston accent, and it's incredible. Um, I have one more recommendation. And I see it on the list, and Miles and I started watching this, so we've we've gotten like 15, 20 minutes into it. Oh, okay, so it's uh, Dream slash Killer, Dream Killer on Netflix. It's just came out this year, I think a f- couple weeks ago. What are your thoughts on it so far? Um, my thoughts so far, not knowing any detail, like, I really, all I know is there's a dead person, and there's two young men who are potentially involved, and what I don't like is I watched a police interrogation, and I really hated the cop who was doing mm-hmm. the interrogating, because mm-hmm. he was like, you're like my son, you remind me of him, and I would want to help him out, and it's just mm-hmm. so manipulative, and it infuriated me. Yeah, it's... It's going to continue to. It's a really, it's great. I thought it was really well done. Um, and I think the story is very compelling. And okay. I I remember the story a little bit. I definitely heard about this case before. Okay. Not in its completion in, in entirety like that. But yeah, I would highly recommend finishing that. And for okay. uh, listeners to check that out. If you're looking for something true crime, that's one episode. It's nice every once in a while. Like, there's so many docu-series right now. Yes. Which I love. But sometimes I just want like, a big one meal. thing <laughs> you know <laughs> yes i don't want a meal plan i want a big meal well and sometimes those docuseries like drag out things and they have like some really boring episodes in the middle where it's like nothing is happening in this episode you really didn't need to go uh, into this level of detail especially when i watch some of the older ones mm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah well should we actually get into our podcast now let's do it what is this podcast This is Ripped from the Headlines. We cover Law & Order episodes and the true crimes that inspire the episodes. And this is Season 2, Episode 15, and it is called Trust. Ooh. Okay, so this episode opens on Beat Cops, so I'm at 7 of 8. You're really close. I gasped. I was so excited. (laughs) Still haven't seen much evidence picked up with pens or pencils yet, though. I'm wondering if that was a Grievy-motivated move, Mm. you know? Maybe Grievy took that with him. Maybe took it to the grave. Maybe that's what got him, like, oh, wait, he get, I was going to say fired, but he died. <laughs> yeah, he died. <laughs> he didn't die over stationary, God yeah. willing. So the beat cops roll up on this kind of industrial looking building in sort of a rundown area. And it sounds like they're looking specifically for someone. But as they're heading toward a building, they see this person kind of like running past them in a, like a sort of horror movie sort of way mm-hmm. and decide to head after him. Inside the building, they find three kids. They're three young black men, three young black kids, and they kind of like are like, "What are you doing?" Blah blah blah. 
and one of the cops says, like, stay with them. I'm going to keep searching the building. And again, I'm not sure why. Like, there was no indication of what they were looking for. But he goes into another room in the building, and there he comes upon the body of another kid. And then we get the title sequence. Mm -hmm. Since I watched this yesterday on my birthday... So since it was my birthday, I decided decided that I needed a fun dessert. So I flew to Paris, enrolled at Le Cordon Bleu, became a master chef, <laughs> baked myself a lemon tart with fresh raspberries and edible gold leaf decorations. And by the time it was like perfectly decorated, the episode was back. Two things. Yes. D- perfect choice for dessert. Thank you. I very, very much approve of that. Um, I love the I love a lemon tart. I love a tart. Mm, and I too. love raspberry and lemon. Same. So, beyond. Number two. <laughs> Did you already enroll at Le Cordon Bleu? Did I? I have not. Okay. <laughs> I had a, a moment of fear that that was one of the things you've done during the title sequence. Oh, no, no. Number two. Anytime someone uses edible gold leaf on a dessert on like a oh. cooking show, uh-huh. I want it. I don't know. Does it taste like anything? I've never had it. I doubt it. It probably doesn't. I. You yeah. know what I love when they put it on like dark chocolate? Oh, yeah. Just so pretty. feels like luxe. Yes, very much. Okay, so my tart is cooling. We come back. We learn that the kid has been gone for about 12, or dead for about 12 or 18 hours. And there's a gunshot wound to his head that killed him. And we learn that he's 16 years old. And based on the school ID they find, his name is Robbie Fenwick. Hmm. They outside of the building find a gun that like somebody had clearly tried to throw into the nearby river i guess sure didn't make it so it's just kind of sitting on the ground there which i feel like wouldn't you have <laughs> thrown it again <laughs> yeah like oh shucks yeah gotta leave it but, where it lay <laughs> yeah so logan and Soretta go and question the three boys that the police had found in the building about the body and the boys are like we literally just heard there was a body in here and we came to see it and that's the entirety of their storyline isn't that so, like the plot of goonies Basically? Um, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. That's it. Yeah. Okay, so back at the station, the ballistics expert, who, by the way, could double as any village girl in Little House on the Prairie, <laughs> she says literally no less than 25 minutes worth of words about guns and bullets. Like, she's like, it's an Excalibur Xenoblade 2437 hike type revolver. And she, it goes on for a long time. She also was giving me uh, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman vibes with her braids. Yes, yes. <laughs> Could have been that. It was weird because it was like a tight French braid that was held together by a scrunchie, but then there was like still another like seven or eight inches of hair below the scrunchie. Feet. Seven or eight feet. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they find out that the gun is registered to a man named Ian Mazer. So they go interview him, and he is like, what, what's this about? And they tell him his gun was found at the scene of a homicide. He's like, that's impossible. I keep it locked in my bedside table. And they show him the picture, and he's like, oh yeah, well, that's my gun. Guess it's not locked in my side table after all. And they find out that the only people with access to the house who could have gotten the gun other than him are the cleaning person and his son. So they go interview the son, Jamie, who is in his room, which is very heavily decorated with posters. This scene. And he, he appears to be listening to a Lilith Fair concert on TV. <laughs> I don't think that's what it was, but it was so loud. <laughs> I, I swear it was like Tori Amos playing piano on the TV. It was very moody. It was a very yes. moody, atmospheric 
wailing and he was sitting so close to the tv oh like two (laughs) inches from the screen and like laying on his side in the fetal position with his face practically pressed against the television it was great so they get that kid down to the station and ask him what had happened and he says that he had the gun and he wanted to show his friend robbie who's the dead kid And he says that Robbie wanted to see the gun, and he was kind of, like, waving it around. He says Robbie, like, reached for the gun, and when he reached for it, the gun went off. He freaked out and ran out of there. It's just like Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) They both reached for the gun. So he's—it's all an accident, according to this kid, Jamie. And Craig and Robinette and the detectives have a little bit of a conversation about, like, what to charge the kid with. And they're being weirdly lenient in this, especially considering there's a dead child. Because they were like, I don't know, do we even have to charge him with anything? Like, it was an accident. I know. You know, heh. Like, it was weirdly uh, lenient. Let it go. Slap on the wrist. So they head back to the scene to kind of do a little more detective work and recreate the sequence of events and realize things aren't quite adding up to the story that Jamie had told them. Soretta does some really good space work in this scene, by the way. Somebody took his mind classes very seriously in his community acting program. (laughs) They go back and interview Jamie and they're like, hey, your story is malarkey. Tell us what actually happened. (laughs) Malarkey. I know. So Jamie is like, sorry, we were playing a game, a game called Trust, where you aim the gun at your friend until he tells you to stop. Oh, I love that game. Uh, Let's play it at my next birthday party, okay? Oh, good idea. Good idea. So he says, I didn't mean to hurt Robbie, but he was just aiming at him and squeezing the trigger really slowly. And he's like, I didn't think it was going to go off because I thought I would have to pull back the hammer and it wasn't supposed to go off. But... Back with the ballistics people, they kind of pull this story apart, too, because Jamie, or his father, is like a competition marksman who shoots guns all the time, and he had shown Jamie how to shoot guns. Jamie had been to shooting ranges with his dad all the time, and so they're like, okay, if he was trained to do to do this, he would have been looking down the sight of the gun, and... If he was pulling the trigger slowly, he would have seen that this is a gun that automatically cocks the hammer back. And so there's no way that he didn't realize that the gun was about to fire. Right. So they go to his school and interview his teachers. And from there, they learn that Jamie was taking some psychiatric medication, uh, but they don't really know what for. And they interview a bunch of classmates who basically all are like, yeah, he was fucking weird. And... (laughs) His friend Robbie was also pretty creepy. Robbie was, like, really into guns. And one of the girls says he was always talking about guns and shooting and getting high. (laughs) I remember that girl. And one of them says that Robbie had the nickname Deuce Deuce because last year he had showed up to school with a twenty-two. That is not a thing. No. That is clearly an adult writer who does not know, like, how nicknames work. Correct. If his name was Deuce Deuce, it wasn't because he showed up to work with a 22. It's because he showed up to, like, school and he crapped his pants. Exactly. He shat his <laughs> pants. So they go interview Robbie's father. This is the father of the ki- of the child who was shot. And his dad says that he had never been able to get an answer from Robbie on where he had gotten the gun. Um, his mom said that he was fascinated with guns and fascinated with Jamie's dad because he was a competition shooter. So Robbie was kind of like into... Um, Jamie and his father and their shooting lifestyle. 
both Jamie's father and mother both talk, both say they can't really talk about Jamie and his therapy or his medication because it's all tied up in part of the agreement of their divorce. And the mom also says that it's the reason they split up. And so far, I'm kind of not loving where they were taking this episode because it felt like the story was like, this is a kid with mental health issues and the parents are blaming him for the reason they divorced. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that's not where it ends up, but... She says there was an incident that led to his therapy, but again, she can't talk about it because, quote, it's been sealed. And so Logan and Soretta are like, okay, if it's if there's something that's been sealed, that means Jamie has been in trouble before, and there are juvenile records that we can't get access to, but maybe we can find a way around that and go talk to the police man who had filed the original report. I'm not clear on how they found who this cop was, but they go and interview this cop. Mm-hmm. Well, And I wonder, like, wouldn't those records be sealed too? I, I don't know. I guess. Like, wouldn't you think there would be a gag order if the records were sealed? I don't know. Right. It's like, okay, seal all the records, but leave like one or two incriminating documents out just for like, yeah, you know, the sake of it. <laughs> yeah. So th- from that police officer, we learned that Jamie had actually shot another kid two years ago and it was all reported as an accident. Same exact story. The He said that the kid said he thought he had to pull back the hammer before the gun would shoot. It was all an accident. So we've got an almost identical crime. And at this point, Stone wants to go for murder too and try Jamie as an adult. Because he's like, he's done this before. He did it again. And there's n- no indication that he won't continue to do this. Mm-hmm. So... Logan and Soretta go pick up Jamie, who, again, I feel like whenever we have a child actor who's moderately decent, it's worth pointing out, I think Jamie was an okay actor in this episode. I agree. I was wondering if he was famous or not, but I didn't look it up. And he's got that hair. He's got that 90s Quintessential 90s hair. hair. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like he's like, especially the scene when they open the door and he's like watching MTV, it's like a pizza rolls commercial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, his name is Harley Cross. He's really cute now um he was on a couple tv series i've never heard of and some other things nothing notable it doesn't look like he's a big actor okay harley cross well i i like your name it's a little like harley quinn it's cute so um jamie's defense attorney come comes to meet with stone and says that they plan to plea not guilty because jamie was involuntarily intoxicated uh he said that jamie was being forced to take this psychiatric medication that he didn't want to take um and that the medication made him less able to assess the consequences of his actions and that this medication caused hallucinations and dissociation and so it's definitely this medication's fault we're gonna plea not guilty and you don't have a case They call Dr. Olivet, the uh, police psychiatrist, who does an assessment of Jamie. And long story short, we kind of learn that Jamie's father has been abusive and that Jamie's kind of shooting people is his way of working through whatever this trauma is with his father. Mm -hmm. So they realize that they're kind of stuck, though, because the sealed case is really standing in their way, and they'll never be able to convict without that previous incident. But they do bring it to trial without those sealed records being opened, and on the stand, Jamie testifies about how he was, like, really disconnected during the shooting, and the defense is questioning him, his his defense attorney, and he basically is saying, 
you know, that's similar to what somebody who experienced, uh, you know, some kind of trauma would experience. It's this sort of dissociation where you didn't realize what was happening. And they have a medical expert who kind of testifies that uh, the medication Jamie was on could cause hallucinations and strange behavior. And it's his opinion that Jamie was essentially intoxicated uh, during the shooting. Stone questions whether the same feelings of dissociation from the medication could be similar to those from a person who has experienced physical or sexual abuse, and the doctor says yes. And when Stone cross-examines Jamie, he, through some very dramatic court theatrics, gets Jamie to, like, hold the gun and demonstrate that he knows how it should be fired. And so the jury all sees, like, the hammer cock back automatically very slowly. and But... The jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty by reason of mental defect. Hmm. I don't know if that's still the legal terminology or not, but not great. Stone decides, you know what? I'm not done here. I'm going to try to get that record unsealed and reopen this investigation. And the way he does kind of works around this is he convinces the mom to testify. And she attests that Jamie's father was abusive to both her and Jamie, and that Jamie ended up mimicking his father's behavior and became really aggressive. He threatened her, and he even threatened her with a gun that he pointed at her. And she says that he said, quote, you don't believe I'd do it, do you? Graham didn't believe it either. And Graham was the kid he killed two years before. Mm-hmm. So Stone asks her, do you believe he would have shot, could have shot you? And she says, yes, I do think he could have. And this time, the jury comes back and they find the defendant guilty and stone and robinette celebrate their victory and that is the end of the episode good job thanks i feel like i went over that pretty quickly you did there was some moments of kind of like legal there was definitely a a number of scenes with like schiff and stone and robinette kind of debating what to do with the case but it didn't really advance the story so i was like nah, i'm not gonna include that yeah there was a lot of back and forth and like oh what are they gonna think that's a lot that they they did a lot lately they did well good job Thanks. Do you have any guesses? Are you ready for it? Is it the I don't like Mondays girl? No, no. Okay. Um, Dude, that's a good one, though. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well. Okay, tell me. Should this, I know it? Um, I don't think so. I, did, I didn't know it. Okay. But it's, yeah. This is inspired by the killing of Sean Ouellette. Mm, definitely don't know that name. Mm, yes. It's kind of hard to pronounce it from looking at it but i've gotten it down and i've heard it spoken a bunch of times so i believe i'm saying it right it's sort of written it looks very french and it sort of looks like it would be like we yet oh okay because it's o-u-i-l-l-e-t-t-e oh yeah i would kind of aim say we let i don't know but we're not i didn't ever take french (laughs) yeah we're not in france we're in massachusetts so it's i mean you would think that the time I spent at Le Cordon Bleu, I would have picked up some French, but clearly I was so focused on the cooking. Oui, oui. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1986, Sean Ouellette is a 14-year-old boy when he and his mother, Jean, or Jeannie, as she's called, and his sister, Yvonne, moved to Canton, Massachusetts from a, a nearby town called Hull. They're both pretty rural, um, small towns, but they just moved on. It doesn't exactly say why. Okay. His father is is not in the picture directly. He's Mm -hmm. Jeannie and her ex-husband have been divorced for some time by the time she moves. She's been a single mother, but he's in his life 
tertiarily. I don't know what the word would be. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. You know, he's still peripherally. Peripherally, yes. So it doesn't say the exact involvement, but it does say that he's still in his life and that he has children with another woman that he marries a few years mm. later, and okay. those children are also like actively in Sean and Yvonne's life as their like half sisters and brothers. Yvonne is the sister? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Sean and Yvonne are living in Canton, Massachusetts with their mother, Jeannie Quinn. And Yvonne is the younger sibling. She is restricted to a wheelchair. I don't know what the extent of the her injuries or what her um, condition is. Okay. But she uh, is, is restricted to the use of a wheelchair. And Sean okay. is sort of like a... a dorky kid i guess he had a a lot of trouble adjusting to his new surroundings okay fitting in with kids at school is difficult for both of the oulets um for their own respective reasons and he's sort of teased and kind of ignored by most and most people described him as quiet and shy when i see pictures of sean oulet at this age by the way i just very much relate to him like he (laughs) he looks like how i probably looked you know his version <laughs> just he just looks like how i was in the, at that age so i, I mean when you I said like the bullying the, the nerdy kid who didn't fit in i was like yeah we've been there <laughs> yeah like he's he's kind of like a little chunky and he has that he has that look on his face of like childhood innocence mm-hmm. and you could just tell like at that age kids are the worst the worst 14 years old anyway <laughs> so genie remembers how her son had difficulties i said at school in this new town um he would complain to her about how he didn't have any friends and he missed his old town because he he had some friends back home and you know he didn't want to come here yvonne also complains about having issues with bullying at school but she she handles it a lot better than he does um she Mm. does witness her brother's sort of bullying as well though okay the two of them are very close um yvonne and sean and throughout the transition they kind of lean on each other they love spending time together and one of the things that they like doing is sean is really handy and he likes sort of tinkering with and improving the quality of yvonne's wheelchair oh cute yeah so some of genie's favorite memories from when they were younger is the two of them bonding in that way and sean sort of like taking her out on rides and running her around and them laughing nice really sweet on the afternoon of November 20th, 1986, not not very, very long after they've lived in Canton, Sean doesn't arrive home from school at his normal time. Hmm. It's very alarming to Jeannie because it's not like him, and he doesn't really have a lot of friends in the area, so she can't really think of a reason why he wouldn't have come home. Mm-hmm. So she hopes it's nothing, but she's immediately like on edge, and very yeah. very little time passes before she starts to panic. Yeah. She starts calling around. It's 1986, so all landlines here. It's like the typical scene. She's calling all the parents in the neighborhood from the PTA book. You know, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? And everyone's basically saying, no, they haven't seen him. Um, No one has a lot to say. One child or two, I think, remember seeing Sean, like, leaving school. All the kids saw Sean at school that day. Mm-hmm. But they haven't seen him since he left. And one or mm. two said he left school with someone that they'd never seen him hanging out with before. Oh, God. Okay. Mm-hmm. So after hearing this, she drives to the local police department. She doesn't call. She just goes right over there. And she tells them that Sean is missing. And we've all seen this trope <laughs> of when mm-hmm. a quote-unquote panicked mother or parent shows up at a police department saying their kid's missing in under 24 hours of not seeing them. 
You know, they want her to relax. They want her to calm down. But in her favor, there were some other strange activities going on in the neighborhood recently. And Mm. so the police are like a little bit more on alert about just suspicious going ons in the neighborhood. Um, Okay. One of the things I read and I heard and one of the things I watched was that there were animals being found killed in the area, particularly cats. Oh, God. Okay. There never is a link, by the way, to that with this case. But because of these sort of strange going-ons in a very small town, they took her a little more seriously. Okay. And so the search kind of happens right away. So it's Massachusetts in the wintertime, a lot of snow. It's kind of hard to perform a search. Yeah. Because as soon as it gets dark, it's, it's sort of like off, you know? But they perform a search. They're having a hard time finding him. And one theory that's kind of going around is that Sean could have run away. Hmm, you know he didn't like the new town he was very upset everybody knew that he hated it here and he didn't have any friends so the first theory that they kind of go with is maybe he tried to go back to hull Hmm. so they investigate go ahead was his was that where his dad lived at the time you know i tried to find out and it's not clear um okay he remained in massachusetts i believe for most of his youth and i think he moved away after that but it wasn't very clear if his father was in hull i don't think he was okay and they never mention whether they thought he would have gone back to his father so i'm guessing Mm. his father was further away okay but i was i had the same question i couldn't really figure it out so they investigate the day after he is reported missing um back in hull they go down there and they start asking around about him and there's a kid kind of around the same age range that says yeah he was here yesterday he was playing with us outside Hmm. and so they chase down the lead they tell genie you know do we have a verified sighting of sean here so Hmm. she's all excited but the lead goes cold and as they track it down they ultimately find out that it was a lie it was a fabricated (sighs) thing by a kid who just kind of wanted to be involved that when people call in like fake tips and and shit like that i special place in hell for those people (laughs) seriously and i know it's a kid who probably doesn't understand the ramifications but yeah can you imagine how Jeannie felt when she got the call like oh your kid is found in hull we just saw him and then she drove down she left and she drove down and then it wasn't it didn't and all that like not only is it fake but the attention is being diverted from still finding your son correct correct and she's getting more and more nervous as time goes on even though it's only been a day or two it's really cold out And so if he, for some reason, got lost in the woods or something, because there's a lot of wooded areas around there, Mm -hmm. you know, he could have get frostbite. Yeah. So nothing is really turning up. Um, They're chasing down a couple of leads. They're asking around. No one's really seen him. They've canvassed the neighborhood. They've asked the kids and the parents if anyone's seen him. Nobody has a lot to say. Hmm. A bus driver comes forward in the neighborhood, and she says that she definitely saw Sean that day on the bus, um, and she said that he had gotten off of the bus with a red-haired boy and she tells them the like cross street where they got off and when they go to that area there's only one red-headed boy that age that lives in that neighborhood his name is rod matthews okay they've already asked this home in their canvassing and you know nobody's seen him he's also 14 years old he's a classmate of sean's Mm -hmm. and when they go again and they you know bring this evidence to him rod the 14-year-old says he hadn't seen him since school that day. And they reveal, you know, we have a bus driver that says that you guys got off the bus here and several kids saw him with someone he hasn't hang out with. Like, right. what's going on? 
Yeah. So he eventually says, okay, I did see him. I I sell fireworks, and I know it's illegal. And <clears throat> Sean wanted to buy bottle rockets after school. So I didn't want to get either of us in trouble, so I, I lied. Um, but yeah. he did come over here, and he bought some bottle rockets, but I haven't seen him since. <laughs> and they're like, okay, do you have any idea where he would have gone? And they say, well... and. He says, I think you'll have a hard time finding him because he hated it here and he wanted to leave. So he was probably – he told me he was going to run away. He didn't say that day or where he was going to go, but I would imagine he probably went back to Hull. So his this kid's story so far is he bought some fireworks from me and then ran away? Yeah, like he was <laughs> bored with his life. He had talked to him about selling fireworks, so he went to go buy fireworks with him. And in that conversation when they were hanging out – he learned from him that he hated school, he was kind of bullied, and that he was intending to run away. Okay. Unrelated to the fireworks. Okay. Because the cops have already gone to Hull and chased down all the leads there, they know that there's been no sight of him in Hull, so yeah. they automatically don't believe him. Yeah. But he doesn't know, of course, the investigation has happened in Hull already. I also don't believe him at this moment, but <laughs> right. I'm trying to suspend disbelief because I don't know the whole story yet. <laughs> right, exactly. So this sets off red flags in everyone's mind, but again, there's nothing to suggest anything other than this has happened. Um, there's nothing to suggest that he's not even, that he couldn't just be alive someplace. Right. Meanwhile, Jeannie is sort of like losing grip with with things, and she describes herself as doing things that were really strange that she can't explain. She was cooking constantly. She says she was making hmm. cookies, his favorite cookies, and trying to waft the smell out of the window, hoping... He would somehow smell it and, you know, Thanksgiving came and went and she made all of his favorite foods hoping maybe he would come home. And um, she describes herself as like an absent parent to Yvonne during that time, which mm. looking back at, she feels really hard about, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's really tearing her apart. And a lucky break finally comes when an anonymous female informant, or I guess not informant, but tip comes in. Okay. So a phone call comes in on the to the police department, and she only says, and it doesn't really say when it happened. Um, when I'm looking back at the timeline, it looks like it would have happened during the first 10 days of Sean's disappearance. Okay. But that's just the timeline I've kind of put together. But the tip comes in, and the woman on the other line doesn't identify herself. She just says that she has a coworker who told her that he knew that Sean had been hurt and that he was hit with a baseball bat. And then they ask for more details, and she hangs up. This okay. woman has never been identified. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. December 11th, 1986, the police department in Canton received an anonymous letter with no return address on it that said, and I'll read you a few quotes from it. It started out by saying, quote, Sean Ouellette did not run away and he wasn't in trouble with anyone. He went to Rod's house to buy bottle rockets, unaware of Rod's plans to kill him, end quote. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the letter, it says... I've enclosed directions on where to find Sean, and once again, I'm sorry I didn't tell you earlier, end quote. Um, I think it's like a two-page handwritten letter, and huh. the note said also that Rod told both the author of the note and one other person, another boy at school, about this, and showed them the body, and oh. said that if they told anyone, they were next. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I'm curious, did you get to see this handwritten letter? I did. Did, did it stand out as like, were there anything, like, did it look like it was maybe written by a little girl or a little boy or... It looks like it was written by a child, mainly because okay. it's written in cursive. 
Okay. I know it's the 80s and everyone was writing in cursive then, oh, but it yes. looks like it's written in cursive by someone who, you know. Is learning cursive? Kind of. It, it, okay. You know when you just look at handwriting and you could tell it would be like on an exam? Yes. You know what I mean? Okay. Like you could yeah. totally see this note transposed onto an exam. Yeah. And they do say that they are a student. Okay. So when investigators arrive to the location described in the note, they do find the body of Sean Ouellette. Uh, okay. When Jeannie is told, she recalls running out the door of her house into this night and screaming his name in the street. <laughs> when she talks about it on camera, because I was able to find a, an episode of a TV show where she, that kind of goes over this, and it's a lot of her interviews, so it's yeah. really compelling to watch. It'll be on on the resources on the website. But Okay. Um, when she talks about it on camera, she has to get up and leave the room, and it's been over 20 years when, when this came out. Wow. So she takes a break and she, this, I'm just describing this scene from, cause it was so compelling to me. Like every, I watched the episode a few times and I cr- like cried every time I watched this scene. Mm. She remembers when she went to go identify him, she had to wait 48 hours because he had to thaw out still. Ugh. He was 5'11 and he was, you know, a heavy set kid for, for 15. So it took yeah. a long time for his body to thaw and she had to wait. And she remembers when she sees him kissing his face and she remembers smelling him. And she describes that, you know, every mother knows the individual smell of each of her children. Yeah. And there's this really impactful scene where she says, you know, she has some of his belongings and she's kind of like showing them to the camera. It's really jarring, but the first thing she shows is a baby shoe. And she's like, this is his first shoe. And, you know, lots of parents have that. And then she has a little jar and she says, this is his hair. But it's not his hair from when he was a baby. It's hair that was given to her from from his body. Oh, okay. And she's looking at the jar and she says, it's hair and it's matted with his blood and brain matter. Oh, God. Okay. And it's like the most heartbreaking thing, the way she says it. And she says right afterwards, she says, I don't think I'll ever take this out again. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just the impact that this has had on her life, you know? Terrible. I can't. So two boys um, come forward very shortly after they find the body. Um, One's name is Jonathan Cash. I wonder if they call him Johnny. (laughs) And the other one is Robert Peterson. And they're two students, and they say that John was the one who wrote the letter. Mm, And they're the boys who saw the body. And once they found the body, they felt, I guess, safe enough to come forth, I guess. Also, they probably tracked down the letter, I bet. Yeah. Rod according to them, had been planning this murder since before Halloween. And wow. Yes, and it occurred on the day he went missing. So that was on March. That's not March, I'm sorry. November 20th? Yes, thank you. And he didn't have a victim in mind when he first started planning the murder. He just wanted to murder someone, quote, to see how it feels. <sighs> and he eventually chose Sean from a list he was making because, quote, nobody would miss him. Because oh. he was new in town and he was bullied at school bullied yeah god so he also told the boys that he had taken sean out to the woods saying you know he invited him over to buy bottle rockets which was true and he when he was over said he needed to return a baseball bat to his friends so he told him to like follow him through the woods because he lived on the other side so he ends up following sean at some point during this trek through the woods and he carefully chooses to walk in his footsteps in the snow not Mm. to leave his own prints wouldn't you notice somebody doing that? Well, 
you know, not if you're 14 and you believe this kid is just following you through the woods. And when you're walk, I guess you don't really walk. Have you walked in snow? No, I no, I haven't. Yeah, not really. It's not totally uncommon to do that. Like if you're trying to tra- traverse through like snow in any kind of area, if there's yeah. footsteps, it's easier to walk in the footsteps sometimes okay. than okay. to like step in knee deep snow, fresh snow. Yeah, yeah, so that makes sense. Okay. I, I would imagine that it wouldn't be too unusual for Sean to not have noticed it, especially if he's behind him. But oh, Sean was behind him. No, Sean was in front. Okay. Sean okay, ends okay. up in front, even though, like he was saying, follow me to the, the house at some point yeah. when they go into the woods, Sean ends up in front. Okay. And so then he says that, or the boys say that Sean told him that he hit him in the head with a baseball bat, that he was returning. And he said that Sean screamed, God help me. And then he hit him mm. again. Ugh. Most of the articles stop there about where, you know, that was the, like death. That was how death resulted or that was the the fatal blow right but i did read in one of one or two of the articles that according to the autopsy he had been struck seven times jesus okay so um after all this happens they found out about this because rod brought the boys out to the woods he had bragged about it to them and then brought them out in the woods in nighttime to show them the body as proof and they both saw it and had been traumatized by it and (laughs) they told him or they say that he said no one's ever going to find out because you guys aren't going to tell anybody because you never know you could be next. Well, and yeah, I mean, I know ch- like young adults and children make very different decisions than adults would. But I feel like <laughs> if anybody told me, hey, I killed somebody, come see the body with me, I would be like, number one, no. Number two, wouldn't you? I would be so concerned that that person was then going to also kill me. Oh, yeah, I would be. I guess if I was 14 and some kid at school, I guess it would depend on how close I was to them, was like, I killed somebody, I killed somebody. And then I was like, I would probably be like, yeah, right. I know, it would be so hard to believe them. I guess that's true. Yeah, they probably didn't think he was serious. And he probably was like, I'll show you, I'll prove it to you. And they probably were like, yeah, right, he's going to take us out to the woods and we're going to laugh at him, you know? Right, yeah. So it's three weeks from when Sean is killed before the body is found. Okay. And during those three weeks, on two separate occasions, Rod brought people to see the body. Okay. When they go to Rod's house, with all of this new information, he denies even having a baseball bat. Mm -hmm. But his sister's like, we have a bunch in the garage. (laughs) (laughs) And when they go in the garage, they find a rack of baseball bats, and one of them has clear evidence of blood still on it. Barely even, like, tried to be cleaned. Cleaned. Wow, okay. So they arrest him for murder, and it goes to trial on March 2nd, 1988, so almost two years later. Hmm. The trial against Rod Matthews is widely publicized in the area, but it's a small town, and mm-hmm. so the whole like neighborhood is, is activated about it. Yeah. Jeannie describes, like, at first finding a lot of support and then suddenly finding herself like very ostracized. She says that many people would tell her that she brought bad luck to the neighborhood. What? Yeah. And she's, she felt bitter because the people who she felt rallied around her at first eventually like kind of left her. Like she'd been almost like a stain to the neighborhood because she didn't grow up there. You know, she moved there just recently and they sort of felt like she brought bad, bad things to the neighborhood. Okay. Terrible way to treat somebody. Who's yes. grieving the grieving the loss de- of their child, the murder of her. I, I can't even. <laughs> right. So 
kind of reminds me almost uh remember the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh story and the I wonder if they were if there was so much media attention that like the little town felt kind of disrupted in that way. I wonder. I, I didn't see a lot of news reports on it, but I know it was on the local news a lot. I know it was okay. like covered a lot. And I know that Jeannie was very, very, very vocal about it. She didn't want okay. the story to go away. Um so I wouldn't say she was a pest at all. I think the police department worked with her. But she was yeah. very much in the public eye about it, you know? Okay, gotcha. During trial, most of the people who testify against Rod are his classmates. Um, they all have a lot of things to say about him. Not much unlike the TV show, the episode. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a few of them state that he had mentioned to them he wanted to kill somebody before. And most of them describe him as a pretty popular, liked kid, a class clown. And it was mm. like in very stark counterbalance to you know the unpopular quiet oulette yeah one source of where he may have gotten the idea comes up during the trial and it's a movie called faces of death it's a 1978 horror movie and the genre is mondo i don't know if you've ever heard of mondo films before i don't think so they're like generally like a subgenre. i think of like horror movies usually and they're like okay. high in shock value i think they're looked they're filmed usually to look like a snuff film. Okay, gotcha. You know, it's supposed to be like yeah. very jarring. And okay. this this movie is no exception. There, I looked it up a little bit. And there's a lot of death scenes and murders and people um, dying by suicide on it. But they're all staged. But they look hmm. real. Mm-hmm. They look like found footage and it's like spliced together. There is yeah. one real death that's mixed in. Okay. I read, Ooh. but God, um, I know, but I've actually heard of this movie referenced in other cases. I feel like faces of death. I feel like that's something I've hmm. heard before. So I wonder if we'll see that again. Yeah. He's unexact. He's unable to say why he did it exactly. Um, he mainly says that he wanted to prove he could. He really doesn't have an explanation even in court. Ugh, okay. <laughs> they try him as an adult, which was a controversial decision. He's found guilty. And he's convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with possibility of parole in 15 years. Okay, two questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, why murder two when he was clearly, well, okay, maybe because he was planning a murder, but he didn't have somebody in mind. That's why it was murder two, not murder one. I was surprised that it was murder two, but I, I imagine that they chose murder two to avoid giving him a harsher sentence, maybe. Huh. Okay. Because he was 14, even though they were already trying him as trying an adult, him as an adult. Yeah. i mean at the time i think of the trial he's 17 but you know yeah. he's 14 okay. at the time of the crime so he has had multiple parole hearings over the years mm-hmm. so the first parole hearing was 15 years after he got convicted and he each time he goes up for parole he is denied and given the maximum sentence of like when he can come back and do it again which has been okay. five years each time okay so his most recent attempt was in 2016 um, I found a few news articles you can watch online about people, like they show the scenes of him now, like in court, testifying mm-hmm. that he's so upset and he's crying in court and saying he wishes he can go back. And Jeannie goes to each of these parole hearings, of course, and she notes that he's never once asked for forgiveness in any of these. Yeah. She showed up at the most recent one in 2016, and she says that this time she forgives him and she they doesn't think people will believe her but she does forgive him 
even though he hasn't asked for it. But she'll never forget, and he needs to stay in jail because he's still a danger to society, in her opinion. The moment she realized when she had to do this forgiveness of him um, came when her daughter Yvonne, who also speaks at the hearing, but she does it via Skype, partially because she doesn't want to be in- she's afraid to be in the same room with him. She's actually been so afraid since the murder that she doesn't even want to be in the same state where it happened. She's been really Mm -hmm. traumatized. And so she lives in Illinois now. Okay. And the reason, again, why Jeannie decides to forgive him is because she tells a story that Yvonne calls her one day on the phone and has a really difficult conversation with her where she basically says, I don't like who you've become. And Hmm. over time, this has turned you into like a very angry, bitter person. And, Mm. you know, it's severed our relationship. And like in order for us to save our relationship and who we are going forward, like we need to forgive him. Hmm. Um, Regardless of that doesn't change the fact that he needs to stay in jail and that he, you know, whatnot. But for us to heal, like we need to forgive him and we need to move forward because we're not we're going to we're going to destroy ourselves, basically. Right. You're forgiving him for your for your own health and well-being for your own being able to. Yeah. Yeah. Just releasing you of that sort of feeling towards him. And she yeah. she is able to do it, but she's adamant he should stay in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last update I see about Yvonne, I've tried to look up where they kind of all are now, is that she's seems to be living a happy life. Um, she's under Good. the radar, but I did find her reviewing a program that allows mm-hmm. people of all abilities to have the opportunity to do fun activities like water skiing. Awesome. Yeah, she did it, and she says it's great. <laughs> so, Good job, Yvonne. Happy to see her living her best life, it seems, as best as possible. Jeannie still grieves Sean's death, of course, as I'm sure Yvonne does. Sure. And she knows now it'll be okay. She's starting to feel like it'll be okay. Um, Rod was denied parole, you know, at that hearing in 2016, and was given the maximum sentence again of five years until he can apply again, which means that this year he'll be eligible for parole again come, I think, winter. And he must be like 50-something by now, right? I think so, yeah. Um, Every parole hearing seems to be more about his own experiences and very little to do about asking for forgiveness or seeking, you know, anything from Sean's family. Right. And... It, according to everyone in Sean's family, he's never made any attempt to reach out to them. Um, it's part of his sentence that he can't directly, but there are channels, of course, where he could like send a letter through his lawyer of asking for sure. forgiveness, and he's never made any attempt to do so. Yeah, and I think isn't one of the conditions of parole for <laughs> crimes like this, like both admitting you did it and expressing rem- remorse? Right, yes. So he does express remorse for what he does. Oh, okay. He does express remorse every every parole hearing, saying, I did it. I, do, I can't explain why I did it. I, I think there's something wrong with me, blah, blah, blah. And I just felt like I had to prove it to him. And I, I wish, you know, I wish I could take it back. But he never, like, says, I'm sorry. Like, he never seeks, forgive me for what I did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found a few more recent updates on the case. There is an Ask Me Anything on Reddit with mm. the half-brother of Sean. Um, his name is Matthew, and he posted it in 2016, right after he had spoken at the parole hearing for Rod Matthews. Okay. So it was really interesting. I read through a lot of it. Um, he had it open, I think, for 24 hours at that time, and he got a mm. lot of responses. Um, most of it you can read on the thread is him answering questions about how he and his family have been doing, um, coping, and all of that. He makes it clear he is 
the half brother, so he doesn't know Jeannie very personally. Jeannie's not his mother. Right. But, you know, Jeannie's always been very kind to him and she like gave him photos of of her half brother of her son so he can yeah. have and he doesn't generally believe in juveniles being treated as an adult in all violent crimes. Mm-hmm. But he does believe that this would be a clear exception to the rule, and he doesn't feel that Rod has rehabilitated at all or shown any signs of that. Yeah. And when asked about his brother in life, he has just one quote I read just to say something more about Sean from yeah. someone who actually knew him. He says, it's a tough question for me to answer now because he has been gone for so long, and I was so young at the time, I barely remember him. I remember yeah. most of the time him being annoyed with me around, but that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I yeah. was a really annoying kid. Uh, <laughs> when he did do things with me, it was normally focused on something he liked. G.I. Joe, Star Wars, F-15s, being out in the woods, or making mischief. I have heard mm. a lot of people say he was like me, but I'm not sure how true that is, but I guess I hope very. And mm. Really sweet. Um, yeah. And here's another like kind of weird update. It's a little out there. Okay. <laughs> So bear with me on this one. Okay. There's an LMN show, so Lifetime Movie Network show. Okay. Called Ghost Inside My Child. Okay. I've not seen it. Um, and I'm not sure if every episode is exactly the same, but there's an okay. episode that Jeannie says she reluctantly participated in in 2011. And the show deals with the possibility of child reincarnation. Oh, okay. Have you heard of this? I've never heard of this. I, I mean, no. Not, so, yeah. It's it draws upon this phenomenon of children, mm-hmm. like young age, under teenage years usually, having these traumatic memories, sometimes in dreams, sometimes just like flashes, of their right. own death, of their own violent death. Okay. And the theory, I guess, is that when a child experiences a violent death, they are suddenly ejected from their body, like their soul, if you believe, mm-hmm. or whatever you believe is the life force. Yeah. And it's a traumatic, sudden way, so the consciousness doesn't have a clear place to go, I guess. And so it would, in theory, inhabit another body of a child. Okay. And I'm unsure if it's saying that, like, the child who has these memories is, like, the full reincarnation, or they just have a consciousness thing, but it's a thing. That, huh. that that people believe. And I've not seen the episode, but I read an article about it in the Canton Citizen. And okay. it reports that it was in 2011 and it gave her major, like, relief and, and hmm. happiness and peace. Um, she met a boy named Justin who has memories of being killed with a baseball bat in the woods. Supposedly he has details that were not released to the public and supposedly one of the details is like a forensic thing that would have only been on a forensic report that's never been released and she doesn't say hmm. what it is but she believes him um that's it's on some level her son's spirit has connected with this boy and she says that for whatever it's worth she's not usually into this kind of thing but it has brought her a lot of peace and she stayed in touch with the mother afterwards of the boy and they're like they text so there's that. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, whether <laughs> whether I, mean, I believe that or not, I'm happy that it gave her some feeling of closure or healing. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the family has wants anything from her, which would be my my apprehension yes. about it. It seems like they don't want anything from her. They just did that, and that's it. Yeah. 
Hmm. Um, and the last good piece of news to try to end on is that in honor of Sean Ouellette, the high school in Canton has established a program where it's like a buddy system. And so okay. every new student or transfer student or student going through a hard time, having trouble fitting in, is assigned to like a, a friend or a buddy. And mm-hmm. it's available for all students. And so the idea is that no one would ever be alone. And it's sort of like a, aggre- not aggressive, but it's a program they've poured a lot of funding into and that okay. they've worked really hard on and that seems to be like have been implemented and successful. Hmm, nice. And so that makes uh, Jeannie very happy. And Jeannie and Yvonne were at like a ceremony, a memorial ceremony when the program was launched. And um, they were both very, they both were very moved and they found it very beautiful. And they find it like an honor that this is in the name of Sean. And uh, especially for Yvonne, who was at the high school with him, who experienced the same sort of bullying. It brings her peace to know that no one will ever have to feel like they're all alone. That's great. And so that is the end of this story. Um, I did want to say there's a website I found. It's called griefnet.org. Spell mm-hmm. just how it sounds, grief, and then net, like the net, <laughs> the classic <laughs> like the Sandra, Sandra Bullock, Bullock movie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they have a lot of really great resources for anybody dealing with really any sort of trauma or grief. Yeah. And it's really easily navigated. Um, And, you know, I just was searching for some resources for parents dealing with the loss of a child. And their their section on just parents dealing with the loss of a child is so expansive for all the different ways, you know, that parents deal with that loss. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of resources up there. So if you or anyone you know is dealing with grief in general or trauma in general, anything related to it, but especially, you know given the topic of this episode, the loss of a child in any way. I think there's a lot of great resources out there. And if you go to griefnet.org, there's a lot of really easy to understand and navigate resources out there for for you or, or maybe loved ones who might be dealing with that right now. That's awesome. And that's it. Wow. Great job. Thank you. Well, how would you rate the episode? I, I like this episode. I found it yeah, interesting. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah. I'm actually going to give it an A. Ooh, wow. I think that's our highest rating ever. Is it? I really liked it. I like the acting, too. So I give yeah. it an A. And then for the crime, I don't think it did a great job, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah. I would give it like a D plus. Okay. I think it got some of the details right. Um, yeah. But I don't like that they like tried so hard to defend the defendant. Right. And make that such a thing, like such a topic yeah. when it wasn't at all related to the crime. Right. And there was really no talk of the of the victim of the crime. There wasn't a lot of focus on That's true. the person they who literally... actually died. <laughs> right. They We saw the dad and the mom of the child who died for two and a half seconds. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't true. really love that. So A and then D+. Plus. What about you? <laughs> um, I think I would give it similar ratings. I... I'm going to give it like a B plus, which I think probably is one of my higher ratings mm. for an episode okay. uh, for just watchability because it good acting, decent storyline, like pretty good pacing, mm-hmm. uh, nothing terribly offensive uh, <laughs> other than when I thought that they were just going to blame mental illness for all of this at the, <laughs> yeah. be- at the beginning. Yeah. Um, for how it dealt with the crime, I guess, yeah, it wasn't great and like you said it didn't really involve anything about the victim of the crime so i'll give it a c minus great great 
<laughs> is it great? Is that great? Yeah. Well, if you would like to help us grow, the very best thing that you could do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to our episodes. Even if you've been listening for a long time, get back on there. Let us know what you think. Yeah. And also, most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. And our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We have absolutely loved getting mail from you. So keep it coming and just send us a note to say anything, even if it's just to say hi. We, we want to hear from you. Yes. And if you would like to learn more about us and find information about the show, merchandise, and our new Patreon, which is available, please check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. And thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. So long. Bye. <laughs> so long. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs> oh, God.